Whenever I preach or teach on the subject of hope, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, I always fall back on a familiar resource. And I've only had it, I don't know, 10, 11 years, but it has become my favorite resource in this particular realm times 100. I'll skip over a lot of other things that I can lay my hands on just to grab a hold of this book. It is called The Hope Quotient. It was written by a wonderful preacher out of California named Ray Johnston. Ray spent seven years researching hope, and he did so biblically. He did so in the realm of psychology. He did so through the realm of practical counseling that he'd been involved in for decades himself, and that's how he arrived at what he has written in this book. Now, I don't just grab hold of it when I am preaching or teaching on this subject. Sometimes when personally I just need a shot of hope, I will grab hold of Ray's book and either reread the whole thing or just open to different sections of it and thumb through grabbing hold of what I can. It is very, very well done, and I have gone back to it a number of different times. This morning, I want to give you just an overview of what he talks about in it. Beginning with this, Ray would say after his seven years of research that every person is broken into what he would refer to as three distinct areas of hardwiring. And those three areas come together to make us who we are and to help us manage difficult situations that come our way. Now here's his three breakdowns of hardwiring, each one of them equal in proportion. He starts with the IQ. You've heard of it before, the IQ. Now, if you're not sure what your IQ is, or maybe you haven't thought about it in a long time, notice the play on words you haven't thought of. Okay, here's a, here's a working definition of IQ. It's short for intelligence quotient. It's a measure of a person's reasoning ability. In short, it is supposed to gauge how well someone can use information and logic to answer questions or make predictions. Now, I pulled that definition of IQ off of some website. I don't even remember what it was, but that's a pretty good working definition of IQ. So that's one equal segment, according to Ray. Let's look at the second one. It is called the EQ. Now, you may not have heard of this one because it's not thrown around as much as IQ is. EQ stands for the emotional quotient. And again, here's a working definition. This comes from Psychology for Kids Today. The emotional quotient, or EQ, is the ability to understand, use, and manage your own emotions in positive ways to relieve stress, communicate effectively, empathize with others, overcome challenges, and diffuse conflict. That's your EQ, your emotional quotient. There are a lot of people that would tell you that there are only those two parts within us, the IQ and the EQ. But Ray Johnston takes it up a whole nother level and says that there is this third compartment equal to the other two. And he's one of the only people that I have ever heard say this. He calls it the HQ or the hope quotient. Now listen to what he says about it. What's at the heart of every thriving person, every thriving marriage, kid, and business? Hope. 
The hope quotient is a revolutionary new method for measuring and dramatically increasing your level of hope. So, Ray's teaching says you have your IQ, your EQ, and then you have your HQ. Without your HQ, life looks hopeless. Life appears hopeless to most people. But when we apply the HQ, the hope quotient, particularly to difficult situations or challenges, we can turn the course of them. Now remember, he's writing about this as a Christian, as a preacher, as a person of faith, and he believes that the HQ, our hope quotient, is fueled by our relationship with Jesus. In the midst of all of his research, he interviewed a very well-known psychologist that he never does name, at least not that I have found. That psychologist has an interesting understanding of hope. Take a look. I just try to get 10% improvement. When couples get that 10% improvement, they get hope. And when someone gets hope, anything is possible. It's an amazing thought. I've looked back over my life and realized that I've seen a 10% rise in hope transform horrendous situations into amazingly great ones. Hope is so potent that you don't need to get 50% more hopeful or 40% or even 25%. Just 10% more hope is enough to launch you into a new and better orbit. That makes hope the highest octane fuel in the universe. And that's true. That is true. Hope has that type of power within us. I love how the psychologist breaks it down. You don't need 50% more. You don't need 25%. Just 10% can change everything. That's how potent hope is in our lives. And it is interesting to me that the Bible has a great deal to say about it. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to get it in your hands and take a look with me. It is not my intention to preach a book outside of the Bible, and I'm not going to do that this morning, but I will reference Ray a couple more times, and I want to make sure that he gets credit for the work that he has done. But right now, let's just get into our Bibles. Starting in the book of Psalms, Psalm 71 Verse 5, this is a passage of Scripture in the realm of hope that resonates deeply for me because I have walked with the Lord all of my life. And some of you that have done the same know exactly what this is like. Our hope quotient has always been tied to who God is and what He has done in our life. So seeing hope outside of what God can do is nearly an impossibility for people like myself that have always walked with the Lord. But for those of you that haven't, that came to know Jesus a little later in life, you can actually see the reverse effects of that, how hope has had a great impact on you since you've come to Jesus. Listen to what the psalmist says, chapter 71, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Which, by the way, biblically, the words hope and trust are often synonymous. They can be interchanged. So the psalmist is saying the same thing that I would. I have always walked with the Lord. But there are always other passages that help us see it differently, like this. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will, shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not faint. That's a familiar passage for a lot of people, and I just read it for you out of the English Standard Version. Listen to it from the New International Version. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There is a renewing aspect of hope that comes from putting our trust in God. And it's designed that way within our HQ. If we will put our hope in God, if we will put our trust in God, it can renew everything within us. Things may look desperate. Things may look like there is no way through it. It may be dark and bleak. But when our HQ begins to rise, and it only takes a little bit to do that, just 10%, and when that 10% comes from God, everything changes. Everything turns around. That's what Isaiah was telling us. Well, when we get to the New Testament, we find other teaching about hope that we really need to hold on to. Like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Wow! I like that Peter writes that way. I really do. The writer of Hebrews would take the whole idea that Peter just put before us and slap an exclamation point behind it with statements like this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Oh, that's good stuff. That is good stuff. When you are in the midst of difficult situations, when it looks like the light is beginning to blink and may go out and you don't know what is left for you, you hold fast, according to the writer of Hebrews, to your good confession, to what you believe about Jesus Christ. Because that may be the only 10% you need to start that light flashing again, as bright as possible, to turn everything around. Hope quotient. Let's hold fast to the hope that we have through our good confession. Then there's some other places that teach some things quite intriguing about hope. Like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll give you a minute to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at the very last verse, which happens to be verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now that's found in the middle, or actually at the end, of what we refer to as the love chapter. What Paul is doing is calling out for us the three main characteristics of the life of a Christian. We could call these the calling cards of Christianity if we wanted to. Listen to all three of them again. These are the three characteristics that rise to the top in a Christian's life. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. I did something with those three words, faith, hope, and love, this last week that I have never done before. 
decided I would go on a word study with each one of them and see what I could discover biblically. Now, if you have been at Libby Christian Church very long at all, you know that personally I love a a Bible study technique called the law of first mention, which simply says you go back to where something is first mentioned in the Bible, you use that as a springboard into the rest of your Bible study. So I decided to apply that to faith, hope, and love. But I did so with some narrower parameters, and I did that on purpose. I wanted to see what the New Testament had to say about each of these three words, faith, hope, and love. And then I further narrowed it by saying I'm really intrigued to see, according to the law of first mention, what the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have to say about all three of these things. And then I I shrunk it a little bit more. I wanted to see what Jesus had to say about all three, faith, hope, and love. So applying the law of first mention with some tight parameters on it, I went into this study. So I started, of course, with love, because that's the greatest, according to the Apostle Paul. So I wanted that to be my first spot. And I just quickly realized Jesus says a whole lot about love. He says a whole lot about love. When he was questioned by a group of attorneys, lawyers, that were trying to trap him about the Old Testament law, Jesus said the greatest commandment is, you can say it with me if you want to, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he goes on to the second greatest commandment as Jesus would call it out, love your neighbor as yourself. All right, don't have to go much further than that. Jesus has a whole lot to say about love. He ties it to the first and second greatest commandments. Easy enough. So then I went to faith. My question was, what does Jesus have to say in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about faith? And how can I use that as a springboard into a deeper understanding of these three things? Well, there's all kinds of different places in Scripture in those four books the four Gospels, where Jesus talks about faith. I just landed on this one as an example this morning. So listen close to Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? But he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Great example of Jesus' teaching on faith. It's inspirational for all of us. If we have the faith of a mustard seed in the power of God and through the Holy Spirit, nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible. So that one, easy to see. Well, that left me then with hope. I already saw what Jesus had to say about love. I've already seen what Jesus had to say about faith. Didn't take very long to get there at all. But hope, hope was an interesting challenge. I started with my Bible closed because I just wanted to see what I could come up with before I opened to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I found myself challenged. I found myself challenged. 
So then I thought, well, I'm going to have to look for a little bit of hope. So I, a little bit of help, sorry. So I started just thumbing through the pages, trying to land on something from Jesus about hope. I, I didn't find anything. So I had to open up my concordance, thought, well, man, I just must be kind of in a, a dark cloud right now that I can't see this. So I opened up my concordance. You know what I found? Three references. Two of them are in the past tense. Jesus would say to the Jewish people, for it was in Moses whom you hoped, and it didn't do any good. And the same type of reference would be used again in regard to the Jewish people that he had standing in front of him. There is one, there is one reference to hope in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to show it to you because it's crazy intriguing. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew with me. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 15. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Yeah, I, I'm hearing some of you finding the intrigue of that passage. In him, the Gentiles will hope. From there, I, I just started kicking around all kinds of different things and called a few people and even talked to them about it and said, hey, have you ever seen this before? And we were all just kind of intrigued by the same thing because nobody had ever gone on this type of a study in Scripture. And here's what we discovered. There is a veil over the heart and over the eyes of the Jewish people today that leaves them virtually without hope. In the year 70 AD, when the temple fell in Jerusalem, they could no longer, as Jim Ray asked this morning, they could no longer atone for their sins. There's no atonement for the sins of the Jewish people today except for Jesus. If there is no atonement for your sin, there is no hope. You are left in it. And so here's this veil over the eyes of the Jewish people as a whole, not all of them. Please understand, there are wonderful examples of Messianic Jewish people. Jewish people that come from that heritage that have given their life to Christ, and today they walk with Him, and that's an amazing, wonderful, miraculous story about the grace of God. But as a whole... The Jewish people are left with this veil over their eyes, due in large part to the fact that there is no atonement for their sins. Now, the gospel was carried to the Jewish people first. Romans chapter 1 says that that's the way it was intended when Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. In the book of Acts, the Jewish people were given the gospel first, but as a whole, not all of them, but as a whole, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. 
Then the Samaritans were presented with the gospel, and as a whole, not all, but as a whole, they rejected the gospel. Then the Gentiles, most of us, received the gospel, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. And when the Holy Spirit, when He was poured out into the lives of God's people through Jesus, hope follows. Hope follows because of Jesus, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's where hope comes from. Isn't that an amazing understanding? And you have to get into the word study to see where it is absent. In the absence of the Holy Spirit, hope is very, very, very distant. But in the presence of the Holy Spirit, hope is close at hand. In the presence of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus and what He did for us, that 10% change, that's all we need. Because in the 90% of it, we can sit back and say, God's got to take care of it. That's, that's how this thing will change. This is how this will be taken care of. God's got it, not me. God's got it. Changes everything for us. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the power of God. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the presence of God. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the person of Jesus Christ. And what happened to us when we gave our life to Him and the Holy Spirit was poured out within us. Hope follows. Hope follows. So cool when we get to understand those types of things. But back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, when those three things get called out, faith, hope, and love, we have to understand that those are the, the major calling cards of Christianity. But in understanding that, you must understand that all three of them have very, very real enemies. Each one of them does. The enemy of love is hate. The enemy of faith is doubt. And what about hope? What's the enemy of hope? The enemy of hope is discouragement. The enemy of hope is discouragement. And the enemy that we all face, God's greatest enemy and ours, knows that. And so he'll try to pound away at us with discouragement, helping us or trying to help us see only our power and our way through it, blinding us or at least trying to blind us to the presence of God and the power of God. So I like what Ray Johnston has to say about it. Listen close to this. A huge life principle I have learned the hard way is that discouragement precedes destruction. I cannot find anything that has been destroyed without discouragement being the underlying cause. No person has ever come up to me and said, I am so encouraged about my marriage, I'm getting a divorce. No one has ever come up to me and said, I am so encouraged about school, I'm dropping out. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, I'm so encouraged about the church I'm attending, I'm leaving it. No teenager has ever come up to me and said, I'm so encouraged about what my faith means to me, I'm going to start drinking and taking drugs. Ask any psychologist, ask any pastor, or ask any parent. When discouragement is present, storm clouds are on the horizon. Something is going to be attacked and potentially destroyed. Every marriage that is broken up, every person who has given up, every company that has gone belly up, every venture that has failed, every church that I have seen decline, every country that has gone downhill, and certainly every suicide ever committed, all shared one emotion, discouragement. 
Discouragement devastates, and absolute discouragement devastates absolutely. In the absence of hope, discouragement rules. You won't find a more ruthless, negative, destructive, vicious dictator anywhere on the planet. That's that's pretty good understanding of how discouragement works. And if you've ever found yourself in a situation where discouragement was raging in your heart and in your mind, then I want you to know that you're in good company. For those that have studied their Bible, they'll tell you that one of the greatest examples of discouragement is found in one of the most powerful men of the Old Testament. It's found in the life of Elijah. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19, and let's just take a look at his story. Not all of it, just a little glimpse. 1 Kings 19. If you're a Bible mapper, then in the front cover of your Bible, write discouragement, and right underneath that, 1 Kings chapter 19. It is the first place to go. From there, you could choose any of these passages that we've already talked about to be your next place. I would encourage Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, and then launch into the New Testament as you look at some of the things that we've already kicked around. But this is the starting point of your map for discouragement. Verse 1, listen close. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Elijah had just faced down the prophets of Baal. It is a dramatic, miraculous, wonderful account. Read it on your own time, and you'll, you'll find yourself saying, that's what my God can do when he decides that it is time to deal with the false gods of culture and society around us. So that's what we're talking about. Verse 2, Then Jezebel, most evil woman to have ever lived, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of those by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mehalo, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now follow this story. Elijah just came through, arguably one of the most powerful moments of his life. He stood and faced down 400 false prophets. He taunted their God in the name of his God. It was a bold move. And Elijah's God, the only God, God Jehovah, responded and killed all of them. But now we have Ahab, the most wicked king to ever live, married to Jezebel, the most wicked woman to ever live, hunting him down. And Elijah, after seeing what God could do, allowed discouragement to take root in his life. And that discouragement, according to 1 Kings chapter 19, began in fear. So from fear, discouragement came very quickly, and he ran away. He ran away, went into the Kareth River Valley, and that's where... God found him. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah was discouraged. So he laid down and God fed him and he slept and then he woke up and God fed him and then he slept a little bit more and then God said, get up and told him to start moving. And so he had enough strength just to get to Mount Horeb, just to get to the presence of God where God was at. And they talked, they talked. And Elijah laid out all of his woes before the Lord. And then God did something remarkable for him. He said, go stand outside. Just go stand outside. So he stood outside on the mountain, and there was wind and earthquake and fire. And Elijah thought maybe God would be in all three of those, but God wasn't. He was in the low whisper. And God spoke to him and told him who he was and what he had done for him and how he still was caring for him. And he said, now move, now move, Elijah, get moving. He brought hope back. He said, there's 7,000 more. There's still 7,000. I've reserved them. 10%, 10%. And Elijah's hope quotient began to rise. And fear fled and discouragement disappeared because his hope quotient started to go up. And discouragement was defeated and Elijah moved. It still works that way for us. But here's what we have now, today, in New Testament Christianity. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us to provide that low whisper all the time. All the time. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, hope is always close at hand. Always. It's a great promise of Scripture. Such a cool promise of Scripture. And when we see it, it changes us. Oh, we experience what Isaiah talked about in the Old Testament, that renewal that he told us about. Those who hope in the Lord, they'll experience that type of renewal. But in the New Testament, we get to see what it looks like because of the presence of God. Join me in Romans chapter 5, will you? 
Just five verses that can bring hope back to you in the most powerful of ways. If you are facing difficult challenges, you grab this passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified, now let me stop there for just a second. You need to understand that Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 are a continuation of Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where Paul writes, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified, Now, justification doctrinally is a one-time act where we are declared holy because of Jesus. We stand before God holy and righteous solely because of Jesus. That is it. We stand before God justified because of His Son. Now, there's another step called sanctification that goes with justification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ. But justification happens when we stand before God and He sees us as He sees His Son. We'll just leave that alone. just want you to understand that now, so listen again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access for faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that's the passage of how the renewal happens, how your strength comes back. It comes back, according to Paul, because through Christ you have been granted access to God. We have been granted access to the hope of His glory. We have been granted so much access, according to Paul, that we rejoice just in the idea of the glory of God. Then he says, not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings. So once we know that we have access to God and we rejoice in the hope of His glory, our perspective will change. Our perspective will change. You can start rejoicing in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And here's why. Because when our perspective changes for our sufferings, it becomes a matter of us now saying, okay, God, what are you shaping in me? What are you bringing about within me? My perspective has changed to see how you're changing my character because I have access to you and I am rejoicing in what waits for me. I can deal with whatever I have to deal with right here, right now because you're with me. You're in it with me and you're doing something. And so I'm with you, God. I'm with you. That's how the renewal happens because of the Holy Spirit according to Paul in this passage, in just this passage, Because of the Holy Spirit, something that was poured out on the Gentiles, we have access to God. We have access to God. And that allows us to rejoice in the glory that waits for us as God continues the process of bringing us closer and closer and closer to Him. That's how it works. So my hope will always be strong. My hope will always be strong. Just like the psalmist said, the hope that I've had from my youth, boy, I'll hold on to it. So the writer of Hebrews says, I'll make a declaration of what I believe about Jesus. I'll make that declaration because it matters. Let's take a quick pass, though. I mean really quick over these five verses. Again, show you something pretty amazing tucked away in here. Starting in, in verse 1. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we go on. Through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Three things rise out of that passage. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. These three remain. And interestingly, hope is mentioned twice. It's the high octane of the three. Hope fuels our faith. Hope fuels our love. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It really is. Beautiful thing about this gift from God, this promise from God poured out on the Gentiles that accept who Jesus Christ is. God will give you the high octane of hope to help you get through anything. It's a beautiful promise of Scripture. Sometimes, though, we still wrestle with it. And if that's you, I'll leave you with a passage that just might help with it. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, <clears throat> and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And when they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. You know this story. Mary and the other Mary had gone to the tomb to take care of what I would refer to as the last steps of burial. They were, they were participating in the last steps. Their hope had died with Jesus, and he was buried and so they're just doing the final things that need to be done. And that's when God showed them something special. Which, by the way, I want you to hold on tightly to this. The fact that the stone was rolled away by the angel was not so Jesus could come out of the grave, but so that we could see in it. That's why. Jesus had already risen, and he wasn't held by a stone. He wasn't held by that stone. So the angel said, look in here. He's, he's not here. He's risen, as he said. So they went to take care of the last steps. All hope was gone. Let's just sign the papers. And the angel said, you look in here and watch what will happen. And then he gave them the next step. So when they were looking at the final steps, God gave them the next step and told them, you go find the disciples and you tell them how to get to me or how to get to Jesus. And then Jesus stepped in and said, here I am. You trust me. I'm going to show you what to do next too. Jesus gave the next steps, reminding them of this great truth from Luke chapter 1, verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. When it comes to hope, 
that is poured into us through the Holy Spirit. You remember that. Nothing will be impossible with God. Even if you are right up at the last step phase of whatever it is that you're facing, don't give up hope. You trust that God can turn it around. I've reminded you over and over and over of this. Let me do it one more time. God is seldom ever early, but He is never late. So don't give up hope. Even if you're at the last step, you hold on to hope and watch what God can do. You hold on to hope through Jesus and you'll see who God is. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, I got kind of excited about this message. went longer than it was supposed to. But I'm grateful that it did. Just because all of us need hope. And you know that. And it's the high octane of the three that fuels everything else for us. So this morning, I want to intercede for those that are especially at the last steps. They're there just to anoint the body. Would you show up for them, Lord, in powerful ways and help turn their vision from the last step to the next step? Would you fuel them with hope and allow them to see faith in a new light that they might love you? I don't know what the situations are. I just know they're real. I know that they're big. So I pray you'll intervene. And Father, for some, hope is just so impossible because they don't yet know you. So I pray they will. I pray that they'll open their hearts so that they can. And I pray that once again in your faithfulness as you pour out your spirit on them and into them, that hope will begin to flourish and thrive. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.